0: Well, good morning. Oh, sorry, that was so loud. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to scream good morning at you. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to Luke 13. That's, that's what we read, but we're going to read it a little bit more in detail, um, and I want you to see some stuff um, specifically in there because it's, um, it's a challenging scripture um, that we're going to sit with today. Um, so as you pull your Bible up or on your device or whatever, um, let me get you up to speed with what we've been talking about if you've not been with us Um Easter is three weeks away. It's around the corner, y'all. Spring is here, man. I love early spring days uh, before the pollen hits and before like you walk outside and it's like a 150-pound St. Bernard's breathing in your face with the Georgia humidity. My friend said it's like dog breath, and I was like, yeah, that's right. Before that hits, it's really nice, which is right now. Um, and Easter um, is when Christians all over the world celebrate um, really a controversial in contested claim uh, that Jesus rose from the dead uh, three days after being crucified by the Romans and the religious leaders of his day. The New Testament um, puts forth, kind of claims um, that the the resurrection of Jesus, that claim that we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks, right, has cosmic implications, right, Uh, Perhaps first and foremost, if if this claim is true, if Jesus rose from the dead like uh, his followers said he did, it proved to them that Jesus was God himself, that he was who he said he was. Jesus was who he said he was. Came to grant repentance and forgiveness of sin to all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Repentance and forgiveness. That's what Jesus told his disciples to preach in Luke uh, 24, 47. And it became, this invitation became uh, the invitation of the early church in the book of Acts, right? Over and over in the gospels, you're going to see this call to repent and believe for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, now, if you grew up in church... Um, you just glazed over when I'm talking about this because nothing is controversial about that at all to you, uh, right? There's nothing new about that in your opinion. In fact, it may be so old hat that it's like completely irrelevant. You're like, you're preaching to the choir, buddy. It it might be so familiar. This idea might be so familiar that it might not register on you at all anymore, what I just said, right? But to most people today, this idea of, of, of repentance and forgiveness being granted is highly problematic. Highly problematic. It's straight up offensive, really, to most modern minds today, what I just said to you. Most modern minds today, when we talk about forgiveness and repentance of sins, are like Pharaoh in the Exodus. You guys, who grew up in church? You grew up in church, remember the little felt board of Pharaoh and Moses and all that stuff? When Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let my people go so that we can go worship Yahweh, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Most modern minds respond like that. When, when someone comes up and says, hey, there's a divine entity that has claims over you, most modern minds say, who's that? That I should care at all, right? And, and so they're either annoyed or offended. You know, annoyed at best, offended at worst, right? In other words, most people today not only see the idea of a cosmic universal divinity as outdated and archaic and irrelevant, but the idea that you have somehow wronged that divinity or that you owe him any kind of allegiance or obedience or you need any kind of forgiveness from him is absurd to the modern mind, right? Or offensive, right? So so the modern mind, I don't, who are you talking about? Who have you, I've not offended anyone, bro. Like I'm a stand up dude, right? Don't owe him anything. Back out of here with your religious jar, your jarger jabbing, jarger, whatever I can't. Should, I should use real words in my notes, probably. So because, amen. So because, because, uh, because this is lingering in the air, the air we breathe today, many Christians, um, I love you guys, are cowards um, when it comes to talking about this. I love you, okay? When it comes to talking about God's comprehensive claim over all of life, God's comprehensive claim over all of life, me and you included, right? I mean, we're happy to say things like God loves you, he accepts you, and oh, oh, he forgives you too. But as soon as you say that, people are really confused. Forgive me of what? I mean, of course he loves me, who wouldn't, right? I'm awesome, right? But forgiveness, I don't need your charity, right? Actually, I'm pretty awesome, thank you very much, especially compared to those guys. On the other side of the aisle. You know those guys? Those guys that, the pro- that are the problem in the world? Those guys. You know those guys? The problem. Yeah, yeah, right, right. A lot of Christians, y'all, I know, okay, some fun. A lot of Christians really fall into that same kind of thinking. What's the problem with the world? Well, those guys, right? And in large part, because pastors are cowards. Okay, all right. Well... You know, I I say I want participation and you give it to me, you know, all right. (laughs) And are unwilling, I got some of you, some of you hadn't giggled, but that got you right there. And are unwilling to be out of step with popular sentiment and say to them, and, and say to themselves and refuse rather, to say to themselves and their people, actually, the Bible is going to claim that the problem is in our hearts, in my hearts, in your hearts. That's that's going to be what the Bible is going to put forth. And when we are unwilling to talk about entrenched sin and just talk about God forgiving and loving, y'all, it's confusing. Right? Forgiven of what? And Christianity loses all relevance. Because right? right. Christians uh, thought that God needs a PR boost, you know, since like the Crusades, you know, and like the Burrow, what's the Burrow Baptist people, you know, and people have, well, yeah, people have, you know, Christians have said, you know, Jesus really needs plastic surgery. He needs to, you know, you know, and they, they took the scalpel to the Bible and, and they try to make it more attractive to people. Right, And here's, here's the crazy thing. This is what happens all the time. Even in Jesus' day, y'all, when Jesus offered freedom, you know the whole, you'll know the truth, and truth will set you free? You know what they said to him? Free from what? Same thing. Same thing when Jesus said, hey, I'm gonna set you free. They're like, dude, we're, we're Abraham's kids. What are you talking about? Ain't we never been slaved to anyone, right? They were offended, just like we're offended when God comes to us and says, I, I want to offer you forgiveness. So What should be an invitation into relationship is an offense to the modern mind, right? But thank the Lord, Jesus wasn't a coward. He was bold as a lion, man. He said, listen, I'm gonna tell you the truth. Anyone who sins, you're a slave. That's what Jesus said, right? Praise Jesus, he ain't like us. Because he loves us, y'all, he does not ignore the thing that's killing you but actually addresses it so that he can deal with it. So therefore, there is a reality, y'all. Heavy out the gate today. There's a reality that must precede what is celebrated in three weeks on Easter. And if we as a people and if you as a person become disconnected from that reality, Easter loses all relevance and meaning and significance. And you have no real reason to celebrate. If the church won't talk about sin which many pulpits and Christians can't seem to stomach, bro, the cross loses all meaning and significance. Forgiven of what, it's just confusing and disappointing. It's a tragedy in that case, right? Instead of what the New Testament writers say it was, which was the pinnacle of the glory of God. Put simply, y'all, if we can't agree with God on what the problem is, then we can't rejoice in the solution either. Or as one pastor said, if you are underwhelmed by your sin, If you just don't think it's a big deal, then you will be as equally underwhelmed by the grace of God offered to you. Uh huh. So, therefore, one of the only real prerequisites, we say this a lot for being a Christian, is being honest about your brokenness. The Bible's not going to let you get long down the road without seeing very clearly the strength of humanity, mine and yours included, is insufficient to create and sustain true peace and justice in this world. Prove me wrong, bro. Read a history book. Prove me wrong, right? And so to me, it's a welcome reminder, right, that despite all of our scientific progress, here's this, here, right here, here, right here. Despite your maturity and growth and obedience as a Christian, you and I still desperately need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Despite your growth and maturity, Man, I love it. Let's be healthy. Let's be spiritually mature. But dude, that can't forgive and redeem you. That may be the path you walk on, right? But it can't make you whole again, right? Science can't fix us. Education can't fix us. Religion can't fix us, man. Spiritual practices, as helpful as they are, can't fully forgive and fix us. We need God himself. And according to the gospel, it's exactly what he's given us, himself. So I say all that to say this. The season of Lent, Leads us up to Easter so that when we say, Christ has conquered sin and death, our hearts resound. Because our hearts have been resting on an intimate knowledge of our own desperate need for God to rescue me again and again and again and again. And that salvation is not once and done. And I need to qualify that sentence, don't I? Because Jesus said, it's totally done. In fact, his words were, it's finished, past tense, right? But you are also told to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because no matter how long you've been saved, how obedient you may be, you still need God to intervene on your behalf, right? Or as we said some weeks ago, which I want ingrained in all of your heads, Christians need Jesus too, right? That's why, y'all, This is why we can party like there's no tomorrow on Easter because our desperate need has been met by his generous overflowing mercy in the cross. So it's why I'm gonna call you in a couple weeks to stop fasting and to start feasting, right? To rejoice in how Christ has given himself to us and will, dude, will continue to give himself to you in greater and greater degree. There's no one like him. There's no one like him, man. So the scripture we're going to sit with today, uh, we have to do some work. We have to do some work because it's a tough one, okay? I'm going to reread it for us, and then we're going to jump in, okay? So if you have it, you can look down, or it's going to be on the screen again, I think. Now, there were some present at that very time who told him about him being Jesus, about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he, being Jesus, answered him, saying, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then Jesus brings up something else. He says, what about about this 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed? Do you think they were worse offenders Than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And then he tells a story about a fig tree. There's a man who had a fig tree, planted in his vineyard, came seeking fruit on it, found none. It's an impotent fig tree. And he he said to the vine dresser, Look, man, three years, bro. When I come seeking fruit on this thing, nothing, not a single fig. Cut it down. Why should it use up? That word use up, it's a waste. It's wasting space. And the vine dresser answered, he said, Sir, let it alone this year also. Until I dig around it, put manure around it. And if it should bear fruit next year, good. But if not, we'll cut it down. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you grant us the mercy to sit with your word? God, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would whisper peace into the hearts of my friends right now. God, would you give us wisdom and clarity and insight into who you are? so that we might see what the offer on the table is today. Jesus' name, amen. The context of this preaching is thousands of people are gathering to hear Jesus preach. If you look at the last chapter, there's a surprising amount of overlap between this uh, and Matthew 5 and 7. Matthew 5 and 7 is the sermon on the... All right, you got it. So there's a good chance that these are referring to the same event or at least similar ones, okay? In which crowds of critical mass are gathering around Jesus and Jesus begins to teach these really provoking, confronting moral teachings. Have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? It's a little unsettling. He's upping the law of Moses. He's condemning religious leaders. He's talking about radical trust in God to provide. And in the midst of that kind of scene, thousands of people provoking moral ethical teachings, right, someone probably starts feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit in a crowd like that, right? And what's the easiest way out when you begin to feel guilty and convicted? You talk about someone else's guilt, You talk talk about how how messed up someone else is. We do it every day, right? When you begin to feel guilty and convicted, you divert. And what do you divert to? Well, what's the most horrible example you can think of of a gutter human? Well, let's talk about them for a second, shall we, right? And this is exactly what this person does. He says, hey, Jesus, you're from Galilee, right? Which could be a little bit of a slight, depending on how, you know, back then. Okay. I'm not going to give a town equivalent because every time I do, I get, okay, It was in the sticks, okay? Galilee was like in the sticks, all right? And he says, hey, Jesus, did you hear about those Galileans, those rednecks, whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifice? Now, we don't know a ton about this, but apparently Pilate, the Roman authority, having zero concern for Jewish religion, laws, and all that practices, tracked down some people who had presumably broken some laws. And he found them, or his, you know, whatever, soldiers, found them these lawbreakers, these Jewish guys who broke some laws in the middle of their religious ceremonies. They were at church doing the deal, okay? And killed them in the temple. I mean, massive, I mean, this would have just absolutely upset, right? And this is what they mean by whose blood Pilate mixed with their own sacrifices, okay? Now, Jesus' response tells us there is another question happening under this question. You guys know when that happens. You know you have a so he he responds. You think these guys were worse sinners than all the other guys because they suffered in this way? So apparently, what they're asking is, "Wow, these guys must have really had it coming by the way they died, right?" Like divine justice, Jesus, huh? Am I right? You, now everyone knows. <laughs> every let me rephrase this. Every married man knows when your wife asks you do you want to do the dishes? She is not. The answer to that's no. No, I do not want to do the dishes. That's not what she's asking. Right. Let me throw you a bone here, guys. Right. Right. I'm not going to lie and say, well, yes, yes, I really do. I would love to watch. No, no. She's asking because I'm a dummy. I'm not that dumb. Right. There's another point trying to be made. So uh, I say, oh, Oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do the dishes, right? So there's an underlying assumption there. The underlying assumption of my wife is we're in this together, pull your weight, son, right? The underlying assumption of these other dudes is what, what's the underlying assumption that they're working with here when they're asking this question to Jesus? Okay, well, they are living with the universal assumption, almost universal assumption that humanity seems to have, which is this. Life should be good. Life should be wonderful. It should be just. It should be fair. But it's not Why? Why is life disappointing and full of pain and injustice? Well, you probably deserve it. Universal. This is a universal assumption about the universe. You've probably done something really bad. The assumption is, if you live right, things will work out for you. But if not, well, you get what you deserve, right? Now, people call this different names. Divine retribution, karma, Cosmic justice, what goes around, comes around, all all talking about the same fundamental assumption about the universe, okay? If you're suffering in any way, you've done something, you've been naughty, all right? And you're suffering because the universe is judging you. And it's punitive, okay? Punitive. And so maybe it's divine, maybe it's like the force, but we don't know. But whatever it is, every movie tells us the bad guys get it in the end. And the good guys live happily after. This is a universal assumption, man. Universal. Every, I mean, right? It's, it's why when you have the horrendous kind of day that makes you want to fake your death and move to Mexico, you know what I'm talking about? You know that kind of day? Right? You can't help but raise your hands and be like, why me? You know? Or like, just get a flat tire. What have I done, God? Right? You're, there's assumptions going on in your heart and mind. I don't deserve this, right? The book of Job addresses this, actually. And Jesus addresses this, actually. In John 9, there's a blind guy, born blind, John 9. And someone asked Jesus, and I love this. I just see, like, see, like, like Peter, probably. And we don't know who asked But they're walking down the road, and here's this poor blind sap, right, born blind. And he just says, hey, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Him or him or his parents? Like, right, right in front of the guy, you know? Who's, and, and you know what Jesus says? Sorry, I was. You, know, understand, you understand the scenario? Yeah, okay, okay. Hey, is this, is this guy blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Right? In other words, is this suffering his fault or his parents' fault? And, and Jesus says, neither. In other words, this specific suffering has nothing to do with the fact that both him and his parents are sinners. This is not God's wrath on him. This man's, con- in fact, what Jesus says, this man's condition is so the works of God might be displayed. Jesus didn't say neither of them ever sinned. He just said this condition's not connected to that, right? So instead, this, listen, instead, this debilitating weakness, blind, right, debilitating weakness this man was born with is so that God could flex and show his glory. What an interesting way to look at unfortunate events and difficult conditions in your life, These are the works of God might be displayed. It seems in Job and in Jesus, the Lord wants you to see a disconnect between your suffering and his position towards you. Or you could say it this way. Suffering is not because God hates you, but rather because the forces at work in a post-Genesis 3 sinful, fallen, fractured world. See, in fact, the fact that he deeply, deeply loves you is impossible to ignore in Scripture. Amen. But Jesus seems to think that suffering is also impossible to ignore, right? And that it is possible to be suffering horribly and be right in the center of God's will and love for your life. If that's not true, how do you explain the sufferings of Jesus? Jesus was Jesus in God's will. Isaiah says it was God's will to crush him. Well, that was Jesus. That's a, that's a, you know, okay. How do you explain the suffering in the New Testament church? Paul was beaten, stoned. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city and left his body because they thought he was dead. He was pursued to be killed. He was imprisoned. Under the old form of thinking, you'd say to Paul, bro, you're cursed, man. (laughs) Give it up, man. God's out to get you. He's judging you. And Paul would say the exact opposite. He'd say, I'm not cursed, I'm blessed. Right? And when Paul is sitting in the deepest, darkest prison after being beaten black and blue, right, what does he do? Sings a song. What is he connected to? James also had this view of suffering, right? He said, consider it pure joy, but we, there's so much there we can't get into. It, we've got to move on because Jesus is trying to make a point in our scripture. These guys are saying, hey, Jesus, we're better than them, right? Right? Huh? God's wrath clearly on them because they died in this crazy, horrible way. They were some messed up sinners. Am I right, Jesus? <laughs> and Jesus startles them. He says, you think these guys were worse than all the others? This is political Religious bloodshed, that's pretty bad. That's bad, right? Killed in church, that's bad. But then Jesus broadens it out. He, he talks about another tragedy. He talks about when a tower falls and kills 18 people, right? right? It's a freak accident, man. It's a freak accident. It's like a natural disaster. It's like no one's really to blame. You're like, well, the engineers are to blame. Well, okay, I mean, maybe, you know. You know we want to blame someone these days, you know. Maybe not. Maybe there is erosion under the surface, and there's an earthquake. We don't know naturally, right? But he's pointing to this violent tragedy that's not clearly connected to anything, really. Natural disaster. What about tornadoes, hurricanes? Is this God's way of killing off the bad people? Can I? Can I? Some Christians think this. Are you aware of that? Yeah. Okay, I thought so. This, is this God's way of showing that he just hates these guys, right? And they're more evil than anyone else. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. I'll tell you right out. No. He says, that's not it at all. You've misunderstood God. And this is why I have a profound problem with Christian figures who say things, ridiculous, stupid, idiotic things, like Katrina was God's judgment on New Orleans. You know, Jesus has words to say to people like that, and we just read them. Jesus says, look, that has nothing to do with a specific degree of their individual sins. And he turns their self-righteous judgment around on its head and said, but you, unless you repent, you're going to die just like them. Likewise, perish. So more than misunderstanding God, you've misunderstood what you think you deserve at a fundamental level what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you at least in one aspect what's going on here. We judge others by their worst moments. I don't know who said this first. I didn't come up with this. But we judge ourselves by our best intentions all all day long, right? We create a scale in which we always end up being better than the next guy. (laughs) And one of the ways, this is phenomenal. This is fantastic. One of the ways we sustain that is by continually finding the most absurd, most confused, most foolish examples of idiocy and dysfunction and comparing ourselves to that. (laughs) It's really a self-defeating thing we do, right? Why do you think the news covers what it covers? We gobble that stuff up, man, because they find the most incredibly stupid or incredibly sad or incredibly dysfunctional event, and they observe it from every possible angle, and we can't stop watching it. (laughs) Why? Well, because it has a subconscious effect on you. And you're thinking the whole time, wow, talk about dummies. Glad I'm not that bad. Actually, you know what? On that second interview with that other person, I'm, I'm actually pretty good, right? And we turn off the TV pumped up in pride and arrogance thinking, you know, I am pretty awesome. Or completely depressed, depending on your personality, right? So on the one hand... Jesus is addressing our tendency to judge our fellow man as less than and judge what we think they deserve. And on the other hand, on a deeper level, he's addressing what you think you deserve, what we think we deserve. So because fallen humanity's default is to look for reasons why we are superior to everyone else, and people will use religion to do the same thing, we tend to think we deserve better, right? Right? That's what we think. We judge others by their worst moments. We judge ourselves by our best intentions. And T- Jesus is totally rejecting that whole mindset. He says, that's not how I nor my followers will view the world. What's Jesus's view? Well, he's, he's raising the whole playing field. It's like, it's like we've been playing the whole game in a low, wet, soggy, muddy spot, right? And like he's, Jesus is saying, look, man, that you were never meant to exist at that level that you all, you're not in that state, Like, every Jesus is saying, every single one of y'all covered mud. Every single one of y'all. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Every single one of y'all less than you were intended to be. Every single one of y'all, me included, maimed, blinded by sin, as it were. Paul's going to say dead. His word's dead. You're dead in sin, right? Right? And life was always to be lived in a better more glorious way than how you understand, right? On a higher level. And Jesus, you know the way the New Testament talks about Jesus? He, he talks about him as the firstborn of a new humanity. It talks about Jesus as humanity 2.0. That's how he talks about Jesus. It's why Paul drops phrases like, uh, a new humanity is being birthed in Christ in Ephesians, Right? And that only by something called repentance and trust in Jesus, what he claimed he did, will you enter into a new way of existing. So, so the view of Jesus is that all of humanity is under a spell of sorts. That humanity as a whole has collective amnesia. And what's the thing they forgot? Well, it's that all of us have been created and are being sustained by the breath of God. Hmm? And because of that... God and God alone has a rightful claim over you as a creature. And when you ignore that rightful claim, when we live lives as if we belong to ourselves, when we live lives defining what is right and wrong in our own minds, what the Bible is going to say and what R.C. Sproul says is you've committed cosmic treason. You've become a part of a rebellion, of a mutiny against the true King and have tried to create your own little kingdom where you sit on the throne. And Jesus seems to think that no one is exempt of this. Not even the religious, not even the spiritual, not even his own disciples who are amongst the crowd. He says, all of you, all of you will perish, right? Just like the way you've judged these guys, that you think they deserved it, well, you're gonna perish the same way. And unless someone or something turns on the light for you and helps you begin to think clearly about life, you're going to die just like them. Thanks, Jesus, for a pick-me-up. Thanks. Appreciate that self-esteem booster. Now, I'm just soaring right now. Okay, but he is trying to pick you up. And how? Well, by this word repentance. He is trying to help you. He is trying to give you something you don't have. The New Testament word for repentance is metanoia. Let's get nerdy for a second. You guys know what meta means? Facebook, right? No. Meta, meta means beyond. It means outside of. Meta, the metaphysical, the science of metaphysics is what? Outside of the physical. Okay? So, so meta, outside of. Noia is the word for understanding, comprehension, perceiving. Thinking. The word repentance literally means to get outside of your thinking. It means to get outside of the entrenched perspective with which you view the world, with which you view other people, with which you view God. Repentance just means to think again to step outside of the way you think about it and to think about it from a different perspective. You've had this experience in your life. Anytime you're in a relationship and someone begins to explain their perspective and you say, well, I've never thought about it that way. See, we think repentance is coming down and crying and weeping and it's very emotional. No, you repent all the time. Well, hopefully you do. If you're in in any healthy relationship and you're thinking away and someone else is thinking away and you actually listen to how they're thinking, okay, that's repentance. It means to see a perspective to see uh, what you see from a completely different perspective. And have you ever had this in your relationships where you're struck? You're just like, well, like i never, I never thought about it that way at all. Well, that's, that's repentance. Jesus is saying, unless you are jarred out of the way you perceive the world and others and God, you will die. And that the way you're thinking about others and yourself and God will be contributing to your perishing. And if something doesn't wake you up, you're gonna rot. You will shrivel up like a fruit on a vine that's been cut off. And what can you do with shriveled up fruit? Well, you know, you can make a raisin, I guess. You can dry up some things. No, you, maybe. You gotta throw it out. You gotta throw it out. It's no good. It's no good anymore. Jesus is trying to help us, y'all. He's trying to help us understand if we can't get jarred, you know, we're using the word jarred on purpose because it's jarring when you see something, the cosmos, from a completely different perspective. Very, and if we can't, y'all, be dislodged from our self-centric, self-focused way that we look at things, right, we're gonna die. But if we'll begin to see things the way God sees things, Jesus says, death won't touch you. Jesus says, you'll possess the kind of life that lives forever. Jesus says, the kind of life you have, death will have no power over. And then tell a story about a fig. Meanwhile, on the farm, a man planted a fig. It seems totally unrelated, does it not? Is anyone else confused by this? What are you talking about? Well, let's just sit with what he describes real quick, then we'll get out of here, okay? He describes the man who plants a tree. Has it planted? The man has it planted. And he, he, the man causes the tree to come into existence. I'm, go, I'm not gonna connect all the dots for you, but I'm gonna try to help you get there, okay? He caused the tree to come into existence and therefore has complete authority and right over that tree. He planted that tree for a purpose. What was the purpose? To produce figs. What was the intended purpose of the fig, produce figs, and what it did not do that? When the tree is not fulfilling its intended purpose, the owner talks to the vine dresser. What's a vine dresser? Well, it's a person who puts baby dresses on little plants. No. Uh, yeah, I was just making sure. Yeah, making sure. Um, No, he's the person who um, sees to the growth in the flourishing of the plantings. He waters them. He protects them. He is the appointed representative of the trees. He represents the trees. I represent the needs of the trees. (laughs) You know, plants, whatever. I water them. I feed them, okay? I know you think you're getting a little, okay, well, maybe Okay? The the New uh, Living Translation translates it gardener, okay? The New King James translates it keeper. So, as the shepherd is to the sheep, so the vine dresser is to the vineyard. It's the shepherd of the garden. So the owner says, look, three years, man. I've given this thing three years. Not one fig. Cut it down. It's wasting the ground. Right, and the vine dresser begins this conversation with the owner, with the one who has right and authority over the fig. And this conversation that's begun between these two sounds vaguely familiar to anyone else who's read the Bible in thoughtful in a thoughtful way. The conversation between these two echoes the conversation that, that Moses had when God, with God. When God says, after, after the Israelites had not imaged God, instead they made an image of a cow and worshiped it. When they had not fulfilled their intended purpose to image God, but instead had created an image of a cow. We tracking? God says, step aside, Mo. I'm going to fry these suckers. I'm going to start over with you, and we're going to try again. What does Moses say? Lord, you can go read it. He intercedes for these ignorant, stiff-necked people. He says, Lord, don't, don't do that. In fact, he offers his own life. It sounds vaguely familiar when Nehemiah intercedes for the people in Nehemiah 1. It sounds vaguely familiar when Daniel intercedes for the people in Daniel 9. It sounds vaguely familiar to Romans 8 when it tells us that Jesus now intercedes for us today. The vine dresser intercedes for the tree. He says, you're right, man. This tree's struggling. It's wasting the ground. It's not fulfilling its intended purposes. But in one more year, if it doesn't produce fruit, we're going to pull that thing up, right? But today, he says, the vine dresser says, today, let's give it some more time. Let's be patient with it. Let's be gentle. Let's not do the thing that it really deserves. Everyone else knows it deserves it. Everyone else can see that tree and say, man, that tree's not producing anything. It's, it's, you're right. It's a waste. But he says, let's wait. And you know what? I'm going to help it. I didn't see this coming. I didn't, I didn't, think, this, I didn't think this was going to happen today says, you know, I am going to do for the tree what it can do for itself. Let me dig around. I I'm sorry, guys. Sheesh, son. You're in front of people. Come on, wake up, you know. He says, let's be patient with it, man. That little tree can't dig around for itself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the work that it can't do for itself. It's in fact, I like this part. Also, help me. I got some cow poop. You know, I got, I got some fresh cow poop. I'm going to go take that cow poop. I'm going to dig around it, put some cow poop around. He says, let me invest some more in this useless little tree. Let me do the work that it can't do for itself. And then if he still refuses, yeah, I'm the tree, y'all. I don't know what to say. I'm the tree, man. If he still refuses, they won't cut him down But for now, let's wait. Do you see what's happening here? Man, all of us deserve to be cut down. We deserve to be uprooted, right? And even though our pride hates it, and even though it's so out of step with our culture, something deep down in our hearts knows he's right. He's right. None of us, no one, man, has done it right. But you know what Jesus says God is like in that arena? He says, despite the fact that God has a rightful claim over you, despite the fact that you've been created to do something, which you routinely and consistently refuse to do, right? He's patient with you. He is so so patient with you and waiting on you for repentance that he himself will do everything he can do in your favor to help you flourish and grow in the way that you were created to flourish and grow. He will do the hard work. He will provide the sustaining energy. He will create an atmosphere where you can grow where health and maturity is possible. And when the reasonable time frame is up, do you know what he'll do? He'll give you more time. When everyone else would say, I think you've given it enough time. Three times around the sun. I mean, you've, you've given it enough time, Lord. You know what he'll do? He'll say one more. Let's give him one more. Because he is long-suffering. He suffers for us. He suffers for us. And his love, it's not like your love. It lasts forever. He gets angry at sin. Yeah, he is. And he's just in his wrath. But you know his anger? It only lasts a minute. His favor that lasts a lifetime. Jesus is saying, this is what God is like. He's patient with you. And it seems God doesn't think waiting is a passive thing. While he waits, he works. He cultivates the ground. He carries the load. He does the hard work While he waits. And if you're a Christian, you may be thinking, well, I thought we're supposed to wait on God. No, not first. No, he was waiting on you first. He's still waiting on you, he's still waiting on a lot of us. And as he waits, he is bringing nourishing, sustaining energy and resources and quietly placing them in the unseen places of your heart and life for your good. You know why? Because he doesn't rejoice in wrath. He doesn't rejoice in giving us what we deserve, like we do. We tend to rejoice in giving people what they deserve, don't they? Don't we? Don't us? Don't us? Don't we? He's not like us. You know, you know what he rejoices in? Saving and redeeming. First Peter says, the Lord is patient towards you, not Wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. So this passage, this teaching is one of those that our culture and uh, our society and even some of us in here probably have no interest in, in hearing. We have very little tolerance for anything that doesn't stroke our ego uh, or meet some pressing felt need or speak comfort to us even if that comfort is a total unreality. In fact, the Bible condemns people who speak peace, peace, when there's no peace. And I feel like our response to things like this is similar to when Dorothy and all her companions go to the Emerald City. Remember that one? Little Toto wanders behind the green curtain, and the great wizard Oz realizes that he's been outed, and he starts, ignore the man behind the curtain. Don't don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. And almost out of a desperate need to maintain status quo, our hearts get a kind of frantic impulse to divert from the real issue of our own needs and lackings and imperfections and character flaws. It's almost instinctual. It's self-preservation at its best. It's a knee-jerk reaction to maintain reputation, right? Or really to maintain the illusion with smoke and mirrors that we aren't what we really know we are, which is deeply broken, deeply broken beyond repair right? Outwardly, things may look amazing, but inwardly, man, the pieces are fractured. Like you drop glass in the kitchen, like I do, like once a week feels like, right? Shards go everywhere. You know, if you don't clean that stuff up, someone gets hurt, you know? Someone steps on it. If you don't, if you don't deal with the fractured brokenness in your heart and life, you will not only wound yourself, but you will continually and repetitively wound others. And when when this kind of idea comes up of of the fact that we are deeply fractured, I think we act like the Wizard of Oz, right? And God, right, in his deep abiding love, is simply trying to coax us out from behind the curtain and help us name the thing that in reality has been choking out your life, right? He's trying to remove the barrier that you've put in between others. You know, curtain and the barriers that you've put in between God. And that barrier is called pride. And when we, like the Wizard of Oz, will and often do put forth a surprising amount of effort to distract and divert attention from the reality that we know is true, which is that you know, we're weak and small and needy, Jesus is trying to show us, man, the thing that he really wants for us is to flourish and to thrive. In deep and meaningful and fruitful relationships, right? And God wants it more for you than I think we want for for ourselves. And I think the question today is will we come out from behind the curtain? Will we acknowledge our deep and profound need for a strength greater than our own? Let's stand and pray. Before we pray, let me just say this. You know, Jesus is addressing that fundamental assumption we talked about of cosmic justice, that thing that you get what you deserve, you know? And and you know how he addresses that is is he says, actually, you are not going to get what you deserve. What Jesus says is, actually, I will take what you deserve so that you can live and flourish and thrive. I'll be uprooted. That's what Jesus said. He said, I'll be chopped down to give you a chance. Let's pray.